Hi everybody, today we have a special edition of our podcast. We received Dr. Patricia Tharp that is going to tell us about the history of endovenous therapy and is going to give us some diagnostic and therapeutic tips and tricks. Everybody knows that endovenous therapy is fashionable. The rooms that used to be empty nowadays are crowded and fire up. No longer than 10 years ago, this wouldn't be real, and endovenous procedures were left for a very small group of so-called crazy guys. But even then, it was known that for every patient with an arterial disease, there would exist nine patients with a moderate to severe venous problem, with clear indications for endovenous procedures. Now, new diagnostic and therapeutic tools totally dedicated to endovenous procedures are being developed by an interested industry. And there is a true endovenous revolution going on. So let's go directly to our today's guest. We have a lot to talk about. Please welcome Dr. Patricia Torp, one of the pioneers in this field who knows all the histories of the front and backstage. Hi, Fabio. Hello. Hi, Patricia. How are you? Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Patricia, please tell us of your education background's highlights. Well, the uh, how do you prepare for doing uh, endovenous work? Actually, my education is a combination of a number of things that all kind of culminate in being who I am. But, you know, I was an exchange student in Brazil when I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And I lived in Brazil for one year, learned how to speak Portuguese. And when I came back to the United States, I uh, went to college um, and decided I would be a doctor. And when I went to my pre-med classes at the university and had a, uh, you know, a counselor, an advisor, they would always say, well, you're too cute to be a doctor. And I'm sure many of the physicians physicians in Brazil who are attractive women have heard that before, but things have changed a lot in the last 40 years because now there's less prejudice against women doing medicine and particularly against women doing surgery. So you see, I was trained uh, in medical school When I went to med, well, I didn't go to medical school right away. I just want to tell you that that I came back to Brazil for a year mm-hmm. as a Fulbright fellow and lived in northeast Brazil and traveled around and spoke Portuguese for another year of my life. And it was at that time I decided maybe I would actually go to medical school. Can you hear the dogs? Yeah, I love dogs. <laughs> yeah. But um, to go to medical school at that time was more difficult because uh, it was right after the Vietnam War. 
And there were a lot of people applying for medical school, and I remember them saying to me, well, you know, if you had applied four years earlier, we could have taken you right in because you have excellent grades. But now it's very competitive, and uh, we're not sure we can add you to our list this year. So I applied one year, and I went to Stanford for the interim year and did uh, a year of uh, biology there and enrolled in medical school courses in Brazil after I got my degree in anthropology. And then I ended up having to get a degree in biology in order to prove that I could go to medical school. And I had to take organic chemistry and physical chemistry and all the hard courses, the physics courses, to show that I could qualify to go to medical school. So it was so competitive at that time to get into medical school in the late 80s in the United States that there was probably one person out of 20 got into medical school. So when they interviewed me, and I had to adjust my application so it wouldn't show that I spoke Portuguese so much or Turkish or Japanese. I had speaked all, I studied many languages. It would show all my chemistry courses on the page. And they said, well, what are you going to do if we don't accept you this year? And I said, well, I'll just keep coming back until you accept me because <laughs> no, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. So that was the year I got accepted into medical school. And I think it, it's a lot to do with your own determination and your own uh, being able to convince other people that that's what you know you want to do. And since then, I've been on the board of selecting medical students for medical school. And um, I know that they're very concerned about your commitment and your convictions to be a physician. But in that era, um, I went to medical school at the University of Oregon. Uh, Dr. Daughter was there at that time, very famous physician who uh, was one of the inventors of angioplasty, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Charles' doctor, right? Charles' daughter. Yeah. And I graduated from the University of Oregon Medical School, and I mass, uh, matched in neurosurgery. I wasn't going to be an endovascular surgeon. I was going to be neurosurgeon. So I matched in neurosurgery. I went to the University of Minnesota and did surgery residency for two years. And at that point, uh, I met Dr. Kurt Amplatz, who actually started to all of the, many of the inventions that became interventional radiology and endovascular procedures. So I met Dr. Daughter in my school who did angioplasty and then Kurt Amplatz who started the Amplatz wire and the Amplatz needle. Mm-hmm. And at that time, interventional radiology was very hard to, it wasn't even, a, you, you had did that as a fellowship after your radiology residency. So I finished two years of surgery and I had an opportunity to finish my surgery residency at in Boston at the Massachusetts General 
MGH, Massachusetts General Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I went there, and the doctor who showed me all around introduced me to Dr. Stanisolis, who was also one of the pioneers of interventional radiology. And they were very nice to me, and everybody said, boy, if it were me, I'd be an interventional radiologist, not a vascular surgeon. You can do so much to help people. So I came back to Minnesota and went to the chairman of the radiology department and said, how can I become an interventional radiologist? I don't want to be a radiologist, I just want to be an interventional radiologist. Well, that offended them, of course. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't think that was very good. But Dr. Amplatz took me uh, on his team, and I was then a resident under Dr. Amplatz for three years and then became a fellow at Stanford after I finished my residency. So it was during my residency, and this is kind of important, and people might be able to identify with this. As a surgery resident, I had to rotate in the Veterans Hospital. And the Veterans Hospital, as you know, is a lot of vascular disease because they're all sitting there smoking in their rooms. Mm-hmm. And I could not stand to do amputations. When we had to do a, a below-the-knee amputation or above-the-knee amputation, I just really don't like it. I mean, I just hated that procedure. So I decided that I would become an expert at how to save legs without surgery. So that was in the early 80s that I was a surgery resident at the University of Minnesota, and I went to Dr. Amplatz and I said, I want to learn how to do angioplasty so that instead of having their legs amputated because there's no blood flow, I can open up the vessels and deliver more blood so they don't lose their legs. So it also became clear to me that anyone who's any good and anything in surgery, or medicine for that matter, has chosen an area in which to focus so that they become one of the best. I never wanted to be a general practitioner. I never wanted to be a family practice doctor. I wanted to be the best at what I do. And I think you have that same notion. But at some point in your career, and usually it's in your residency or fellowship, you have to decide what you really want to be good at. Mm-hmm. And I decided I would be a world's expert at saving people's legs. So you see, I started working with arterial disease in the 80s, and that's how I went to become the chief. Uh, I had a fellowship uh, in interventional radiology at Stanford in 87, 88, after I finished my residency. In radiology. So I did five years of residency and then a year of fellowship. So I did not start my first job, which was chief of interventional radiology at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, until I was 34. But that's okay. My old uh, neighbor was Mr. Wu, a man from Chinese. China, I mean, who used to, his father used to sweep the yard. (laughs) They didn't know it, they used to sweep it with a broom. (laughs) (laughs) 
I said to Mr. Wu, I said, oh, Mr. Wu, I said, I started medical school when I was 29, and now I'm finishing my residency. What do you, um, what do you think? I said, it's just a lot. He said, never matter when you start, only matter if you finish. Yeah. And I think that was very good advice for all of the students who are listening. So it doesn't matter when you start something, you just have to learn it and finish. So I did become very, very good at angioplasty by being a, uh, and when I was at two years of surgery and then a residency at Minnesota, I was very far ahead of all the other people in fellowship because I knew how to do so much surgery and I'd been in the operating room for so many cases of, of leg problems and cardiac problems. So one of the tricks of being a good endovascular surgeon is to be able to see what's inside without opening up the skin, right? Mm -hmm. So that you know what the anatomy is. So you've been there with your eyes, but you can envision it when you're doing a puncture or you know what, the, uh, what it should be like and how you can fix it. So the very best advice I can give to your young students is to really know their anatomy, to really pay attention to their time in surgery so that they have a good mental concept of what's inside the body so that their endovascular techniques will be safe and effective. And you can't do that without knowing anatomy as, as well as you can. And then if you want to be a very good endovenous person, you need to know the entire circulation. You can't just know veins or arteries. I believe you need to know both so that you know how they interact. And then, most of all, you'll know that veins are very different than arteries. All right. So yeah. any time that you can, you need to spend time with your pathologist and doing, I did many hours in the mortuary where they were doing dissections so I could see what arteries and veins were like and how they go together in the leg and in the retroperitoneum. I know exactly how the vein crosses the artery and the deep pelvis. So that when I'm putting stents in people and looking at venous angiograms, it's, it's addition, additional information to me because I know what it looks like if the body is open. And then you have to know what we've learned from endovenous practice with venography and ibis is what the disease looks like on the inside of the vessel. And it gives us another perspective than seeing a postmortem postmortem specimen, but it all kind of adds up to your knowledge. So how did I start doing Venus? I'll tell you. Um, when I did a lot of, I learned how to use urokinase in Minnesota because we would use urokinase through catheters to dissolve clot in arteries. Mm -hmm. And when I started being a chief of interventional radiology at Creighton, I would be the one who would do all the angiograms, and I would be called in the middle of the night to not only stop all the gunshot wound bleeding, but to come in and open up a clotted bifemgraph, aortobifemgraph, or 
uh, a graft in the leg and open it up with the urokinase, do angioplasty of the anastomosis, and see if the surgeon then would put him back on anticoagulation. So I opened up a lot of femtid grafts and a lot of aortomite fems, and that's that was before there were stents, you see. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot with balloon angioplasty and understood how intimal hyperplasia, uh, if you balloon it two or three times, it stops happening. You just have some people do it a lot and some people don't do it at all. So understanding arterial angioplasia and uh, hyperplasia and renal hyperplasia is very interesting when you start dealing with venous hyperplasia. Venous hyperplasia is terrible in the subclavian and it's very little in the iliac veins after you stent them. But in the subclavian it's terrible because there's probably something to do with the mechanism of motion in the subclavian vein region that doesn't like stenting. But the iliac stents, as you know, are very well, uh, how do I say, tolerated by people with relatively little intimal hyperplasia. But vessels and veins all respond to this one rule. Uh, they, they're, they like to have uniform laminar flow. They don't like to have different sizes of vessel in different areas because the flow uh, adapts to a certain velocity and a certain flow pattern. So you want your vessel to be uniform in size and if you watch how the body actually is originally, the vessels don't have a really small area and a real big area and a real small area. That's abnormal. That aneurysmal dilatation is pathology. So the body wants to make everything, how do I say, uniform. And that's what stents do. Stents help us create a uniform flow pattern in the iliac veins. Angioplasty helps us open up the vessels where we don't need to, where we shouldn't stent. So when did we start stenting? We did everything with angioplasty before the early 90s. In 91, 92, they started stenting in Europe. They started, there were articles that were published. Uh, Jean Turco stented the IVC for Bud Chiari in the late 70s. Late 80s. Patricia, sorry, who was the guy in Europe? Gian, Gian Turco. Ah, okay. Gian Turco invented the Gian Turco stent, which Cook still makes. Uh huh. But um, what happened is uh, the wall stent was made for biliary use, to use in the biliary tree when there's an obstruction from cancer in the bile duct. And that was the initial purpose of the wall stent. And what we did was we started using the wall stent in arteries. It wasn't designed for arteries at all, but we started putting the wall stent in iliac arteries. And then Palmas, who's a friend of mine too, Julio Palmas, mm-hmm. did a, a new design with a stent in combination with uh, Dr. Perotti. And uh, they started thinking about doing iliac stents with the early palmas stents, and then, you know, it progressed on to uh, aneurysm, stents for 
and here's more graphs, right? Mm-hmm. So all that time, everybody ignored the veins because there was so much excitement going on in arteries. But I happened to be at a university where I was seeing all the patients who had blood clots. And we had worked on a lot of arms for blood clots because of uh, fistula problems. So we used a lot of urokinase to open up clotted fistulas. So we would declot fistulas, do angioplasty for the anastomosis, and then when people started coming to the clinic in the hospital with blood clots with deep vein thrombosis, it was sort of like my friend, the vascular surgeon that I used to work quite closely with, said, well, why don't you see if TPA, or urokinase at that time, urokinase, why don't we see if we can't open up some of these veins? And that's how we started doing it. There was nobody doing it. And so I put the catheter, McNamara had done some catheter work with veins, uh, Barry Casson had done some catheter works with veins, and uh, other than that, there were a handful of people in the United States who had ever put a catheter in a vein. But we used the same catheters that we had for arteries, which were multi-sidehole catheters, which had short segments of side holes at the tip. There was a mucin catheter, there was a Katzen catheter, and there then became a McNamara was later on, and they designed these multi-sidehole catheters that you could put in a clot, and you could run urokinase at 100 ml, 100 milligrams an hour, in 100 cc's of normal saline, and we learned by doing it that it would dissolve the clot. We put the catheter in. We didn't have thrombectomy devices then, Fabio. Okay. You know, you know that you said, well, you've used a lot of thrombectomy devices. The PASA's angiojet started as just a spraying of the TPA or the urokinase into the into the clot, and the end of the POSIS device itself mm -hmm. was a device that had a generator went through a multi-sidehole catheter. You could set it to give a spray of urokinase solution every 30 seconds or every 60 seconds. So you would send the patient to the ICU with a multi-sidehole catheter and set it to go off every minute or so for overnight and then you bring the patient back and you see if there was clot still. Well, it was clear from the very beginning that if you started doing that with acute clot, it would go away overnight. If you started doing with the mix, and most, and most patients were mixed clot, acute on top of subacute. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably a layer of chronic clot because people never know their history and they don't know when the clot started. And there, to this day, there is no way to measure how old the clot is. You can see if a wire goes right through it like butter, it's cute, acute clot. But you can bet that there are pieces of old clot underneath the acute clot, so that if you do use now a Zelante, Angiojet, the trellis is gone now, it used to take out clot. If you use a penumbra or an indigo, those devices will suck out the acute clot, but the 
more chronic clot, the clot that's two weeks old or older, will always stay stuck to the wall. Yeah. And it is quite adherent to the wall. You can't even go in with a Fogarty catheter and get it off the wall. So the we knew that it took probably 72 hours to dissolve subacute thrombus. And if you know that, and you've seen that pattern many times, you'll understand why the ATTRACT trial doesn't have the results it could have had if the ATTRACT trial design had allowed for the amount of time it takes to dissolve subacute clot. You can only get rid of acute clot within the first 36 hours, but it takes almost another 36 hours for the subacute clot to get soft and uh, dissolve. And then at that point you have a fairly good lumen and then you can stent what is totally chronic. Mm -hmm. So the first iliac stents that we put in were in 1993. It was April of 1993. And um, I remember the patient well. She had returned from a trip to Korea. Her family lived on off of Air Force Base and her son-in-law was an Air Force person and he had married a Korean lady and the mother went to Korea for a trip and when she came back she had a massive DVT in her left leg and they brought her to the hospital and we did urokinase and at that point I still have the angiogram, the venogram and it showed a lot of old clot across from the iliac all the way down through the common femoral into the upper thigh. Well, after urokinase got flow going through the veins, but it looked terribly, that um, it didn't look good at all. It wouldn't have stayed open if you had left it that way. I called Mike Dake, who was at Stanford then, because he trained up. Mike Dake trained right after I did. Mm-hmm. So we all know each other. And uh, I said, Mike, I, I don't think this lady will do well on just Coumadin. It'll clot off again. She, I think I'll need to stent her. And I have to put the stents from the IVC down to the upper thigh, and you have to cross the inguinal ligament. You have to cross under the inguinal ligament. Have you ever done that? He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I think I have to. It's not going to work if we don't. And I remember his exact words. He said, well, go for it. Go for it. So that was the first patient in whom we put wall stents from the IBC, uh, and it's really important to stop above the inguinal ligament and then overlap well above the inguinal ligament so that the second stent comes down into the upper thigh. And that will give you your very best result. And you see, you're obeying the principle of surgery, which demands that you can't keep a graft open if you don't have good inflow and good outflow. Yeah, exactly. So I always ask the doctors that I'm training who are mostly familiar with arterial disease, I said, would you ever do an aorta by fem on a patient who didn't have any runoff or you didn't check the runoff? What if you check the runoff and they had three vessel disease and they didn't have any runoff? Would you put a, a graft, an aorta by fem graft in? And of course they look at me saying, well, no. I said, well, why on earth then would you put stents in the iliac veins if there's no inflow 
from the femoral veins. I mean, inflow from the, the saphenous vein, the superficial saphenous vein will not keep stents open. Rarely do people have a good enough uh, profunda collateral that will maintain stents. So you must improve the inflow in order to keep your stents paid long term. And if you don't do that, you're not doing your patients any favor. So if you don't take the time to improve the inflow in your femoral vein, which you do by antroplasty and then anticoagulation, you don't stent the femoral vein. We do not stent the, in the thigh. Mm -hmm. So endovenous procedures have evolved over the years from this kind of experience of trying to make people better. And we have discovered that an awful lot of the people who get DBT are uh, hypercoagulable and they are always involved with risk factors of genetic mutations or type A blood, which we know now is more, even before COVID, we knew that type A blood was more prone to uh, DVT and clotting. Mm -hmm. And if you get clot with type A blood, you have a very dense thrombus that does not autolyze, so it doesn't dissolve on its own, so you're left with a bad post-thrombotic syndrome. So endovenous techniques still, I think, rely a lot on arterial devices. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people think, well, I think I'll do a vein now, or I have a vein patient, maybe I'll do them. They rely on their knowledge of how to do an artery, and I can only say that thinking about how to treat veins is very different than how we treat arteries. The amount of TPA we use is a venous formula. It's a high, it's low dose, high volume. Whereas the formula for arteries is high dose, low volume. It's because you have a lot of blood pressure help. I mean, the high pressure on the blood on the arterial side helps you with your distribution of the TPA. Whereas on the venous side, it's characterized by complete stasis. Nothing's moving. Mm -hmm. You can't expect 10 ml of TPA to do anything overnight mm -hmm. if it's trying to come in from the posterior tibial vein or the popliteal vein. It will move about a foot mm -hmm. <laughs> in that amount of time. I mean, you, you need a lot of volume to push it through. Now, how do we know what we're pushing it through? If you do a venogram, it looks like it's totally blocked mm -hmm. because of the clot, right? Mm -hmm. But you put your catheter in there with multiple side holes and you expect the TPA to kind of saturate the clot. If any of your students will ever take time to go to the pathology lab and look at postmortem specimens of bypass grafts from the heart or bypass grafts from the leg, or veins and arteries from what you see that all, almost all the clot is demonstrated. It's not solid. It has little holes in it like Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. And so that's why when you work with urokinase or TPA and you run it through your, your veins for a long period of time, veins, the following day you're able to 
guide a wire, get a wire to go up through those holes because it's like a long piece of Swiss cheese with a lot of holes that are hopefully going to connect at some point. And you can put an angled glide wire or a roadrunner wire up through the vein and stay within the lumen. And then you can run more of your TPA. And at that point, then you can angioplasty and put your stents in your big veins in your pelvis. So um, it's important to learn how to do all of these techniques. I don't think you can do endovascular work without knowing how to do thrombolytic therapy. And in order to do thrombolytic therapy, you have to have a team of reliable nurses and uh, residents that will help you watch out for the patient to be safe. So thrombolytic therapy is part of the art of medicine, mm -hmm. but it's, it's truly, I think, not learned by a lot, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Um, I think they rely on all kinds of mechanical devices now, but it's very important to learn how to... Well, Patricia, what I feel is that not much colleagues nowadays have the training, the skills, and most of all, a well-trained multidisciplinary team to use thrombolytics agents safely. What do you think? The, the uh, bleeding is only when people are lazy and mm -hmm. unknowledgeable, but it's totally fine to manage it. You just use a certain amount of thrombolytic therapy and you watch the patient, you check their labs frequently, and you don't do stupid things like put a new IV in when they're on thrombolytic therapy or take an IV out or to put a blood pressure cuff over where the IV it was tried uh, yesterday. I mean, there are some very basic things, and I actually have a manual for uh, guidelines for nursing to manage thrombolytic therapy patients. But I think the residents need to know, and the fellows need to learn uh, how to manage thrombolytic therapy as part of one of their tools to treat uh, DVT. Yeah. Because the results that I've obtained over the years were not obtained just with uh, mechanical brute force. Uh, the people who have IBC iliac reconstructions, uh, they couldn't be done in one day. They were done in five days. It's p perhaps now possible for us to do them in three days, but oftentimes it takes overnight infusion of thrombolytic therapy to soften up the clot and show you the channels where the wire needs to go in order to put the stents. Now, I have a question for you and anybody who's listening. Mm -hmm. What's the big rush? <laughs> this patient has to have their legs function for them for the rest of their life. If it takes two days or three days for you to restore adequate flow flow to their heart from their legs and why is that I mean whoever said it should be done in one day Patricia there are, there are many many problems I think first of all most of the residency programs here in Brazil and I think it's the same in US focus in arterial treatment most of them so you don't get enough training Another thing is that uh, most of the times we don't have people 
that would like to help us doing it. Like uh, people, the, the, the doctors don't like to, to change their routine. Like in the intensive care uh, units, they, they have a lot of uh, patients, you know, very sick patients to take care of. So you would have to, to join, you know, uh, your own crew to do it. Here well, I could tell you one thing that's really uh, probably a key to successful endovenous cases, and that may be true for some arterial cases, that you have to take ownership of the procedure and the patient. It's your patient. This is what you think is going to take. You cannot do it for one day and pass it off to somebody else. Because people who don't own the patient don't do a good job in caring about the details that keep the patient safe. I mean, the worst thing is to start a case and then turn it to another doctor who doesn't really know very much and then the patient bleeds. And then they blame you and then they don't want to do it ever. I mean, see, that's a formula for disaster. Oh, yeah, sure. In order, in order to do endovenous work with clot, for acute and chronic clot, it's not just a piece of cake and uh, the wire goes there from the day one and you can stand it and they're done. In order to do these patients with chronic clot, which there always will be these patients, you need to want to do it and you need to have ownership of the procedure and the patient. So if you want to be an endovenous doctor, you need to get that training and focus on being good at that. Then there's nobody going to compete with you very much because there aren't that many people to do it. But it, it really requires a team. And uh, ultrasound, you need a good ultrasound tech. You need good nurses in the ICU. You need an angio lab where they let you do cases that are challenging and hard. Mm -hmm. And um, you need anticoagulation follow-up in your clinic because a lot of these patients have had multiple episodes of clotting, they have multiple risk factors, and they will not do well on Eliquis or Xeralto. You will have to keep them on Coumadin for many years. And uh, I think in Brazil now they're getting their own monitors, right? People can have their own monitor at home? Yeah, not, not so much, you know. It's just a, a few patients can, can afford to, to do that. Yeah. Well, I must follow about 150 patients. Uh, I get their faxes uh, from the company, uh, from wherever that, whichever lab they go to. And um, if the INR is out of whack, then I, I text them. Mm -hmm. The iPhones have helped a lot because now you can be in contact with people by text. <laughs>